Ready. Hey. Just in the middle of the field, 45, 50. Greengrass in front of him, leaving Lions in his way. I am Jeff Joniak. Blitz is on. Down he goes. Brisker. What was it like playing for Coach Dicka? Uh, I don't want to answer any questions like that. 61 yards. Ooh. A Sunday stroll for Justin Fields. Now, Bears, etc. with the voices of the Chicago Bears, Jeff Joniak and Tom Tate. We're off to L.A. SoFi Stadium where the Bears visit the 2-4 and four L.A. Chargers Sunday night football with Super Bowl winning Bears guard Tom Thayer. I'm Jeff Joniak and welcome into episode 28 of the Bears Etc. podcast. Good to be with you each and every Tuesday and Thursday of the regular season. We always have a special guest or try to today. Tommy uh, lured in a good one. He put, he put out the APB for Pro Football Hall of Fame quarterback, the San Diego Charger great Dan Fouts. A wonderful interview with him. Uh, we love dipping in the past, don't we? That kind of explained the present. Well, you, you said it perfectly. Introduced a lot of the listeners to the past so they can get more introduced to the present. And when you talk about Dan Fouts and his experience in the NFL and the development of passing offenses, what a lot of it what we see today he played for some remarkable coaches, and even though he had a slow start to his career, it had a remarkable ending, which concluded into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Then he went on to the broadcasting business, and I knew a couple of the offensive linemen that he played for, and they talk about his toughness, his dedication, his desire to be great, and it, it's been proven. Yeah, so we'll enjoy that conversation. Coming up, first, let's get the status at Hallis. A couple of things. Injury-wise, there is no change in Justin Fields right now. We're issue and they're getting to it. Nate Davis did not practice. Jaquan Brisker ill, did not practice. Terrell Smith working through mono, no practice. No practice for Donnell Wright. And I want to pick up the conversation here because going back over the tape, watching him, that shoulder, it was bothering him. Did you did you notice how he gutted it out? He at times barely used his left shoulder trying to block Max Crosby, what did you think of that performance by Darnell? Not 100%. You know, it's an inspirational when a young guy has such high desire to be on the field with his teammates that he's willing to play at less than 100%. But I think you're going to have to go back and take out which shoulder was bothering so the en- enemy doesn't listen to this and then <laughs> they know it going forward. Well, they can watch um, the tape. <laughs> but, you know, Jeff, there was a lot of times during the broadcast that you looked at me with the headset off saying, hey, look at Darnell. He's really rotating his mm-hmm. shoulder. And then he had a play that he got fell on, and it kind of looked like his, you know, his lower leg some portion was bothering him a little, but he worked through it. And I think whenever you get into this stage of the season, probably all the way to the end of the year, you're going to be less than 100%. But again, uh, he went out there and played a winning game. Well, it looks like it's a toe. Toe, that's also on the injury report. So shoulder and toe for right. Dan Feeney limited with an E. Eddie Jackson limited. Braxton Jones, the, the clock starts, Tom. The left tackle has a 21-day window to see if he can get back from a, a neck injury. Limited today. Uh, where do you look at that situation uh, with an injury like that in that window? Could he come back sooner than that? Can he come back this week? Yeah, you know, well, I, I think he could, depending upon the severity of the injury. And I went through a pup list to start a season when I had my back surgery. And there's a couple of proving points that you want to make to yourself rather than make them to your teammates or your coach going, okay, I'm ready for hard impacts. I can absorb big hits from linebackers. I can uh, make executed blocks downfield if I have to leave my feet. Then as soon as you do a couple of those things, then all of a sudden they be, all become second nature. So uh, having recovering from back surgery or a neck injury, they're both sensitive areas of the body. So I think once Braxton proves to himself that he's ready to go, then he'll be ready to go. Good news, Chicago. United Airlines is getting brand new planes with all the bells and whistles like Bluetooth connectivity, screens at every seat, and room from everyone's roller bag. United, proud to fly the Chicago Bears and you too. Jeff Joniak and Tom Thayer on the Bears Etc. podcast. Tyson Bajan. I went to the podium today, this time as uh, an experienced starting quarterback uh, by virtue of his first game. Uh, The the reviews have been impressive. The comments also resonating from players mic'd up. Cole Komet and Lucas Patrick were mic'd up for inside the NFL. Those those came to light. Uh, Heard also from Mercedes Lewis. And now... It's a bigger stage. He goes to L.A. to take on (laughs) the Chargers with Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa and the gang, a defense that is struggling, albeit, 
but it's going to be a lot more attention on Tyson Bajan. How do you think he'll handle it? I think he's going to handle it well. I don't think any stage is too big for him. However, this is the one and only national televised Sunday night game where the world of football will be watching. When you talk about him having a home game against the Raiders, it only shows in the portion of the country. But now you're having that game that everybody is going to see. You're going to have young players from smaller colleges that are going to be watching Tyson Bajan with interest and give them the self-confidence that they belong and they can make it. And then you're going to see other young quarterbacks around the league that maybe have been picked much higher than him to saying, okay, what is this guy seeing? How is he preparing? What is he doing to give him this uh, successful of an opportunity so early in his career? Here's Bajan from the podium on Wednesday, and if he's less nervous this week. I have the same nerves uh, every week since I've been playing football. Just usually I'm just nerved up throughout the week. Um, unless we're in practice or unless until we get to the pregame, you know, anytime I'm on the field throughout the week, I don't, I don't feel it. But, you know, when you're in the room thinking about it, studying it, um, I am nerved up in those moments. Uh, but that stays pretty consistent uh, no matter what. As we are, nervous preparation. You know, are you ready for your game mentally? And I think that's probably what he, what he refers to. You know, listen, I watched Jay Hilgenberg throw up before every game, and he's a seven-time pro bowler, and that was even late into his career. When you're a football player and you're driving up to whatever stadium you're playing in, whether by bus or by your own car, there's a certain nervousness that's in the pit of your stomach, and it's going to last until you get your second wind and then you get into the flow of the game. So it's, it's, nothing, it's something that's never going to leave him. It's just part of the game. But, you know, I, I think Tyson – was raised around a father that had a lot of notoriety and experience and camera lights and action. And you kind of get used to seeing that from, from afar, from somebody you're really close to. Yeah, no question. That, uh, that makes total sense. Uh, it's not that far away from a major metropolitan city, even though you think, oh, this is a country kid or whatever. No, that's <laughs> not the case. The Potomac River ran right through the back of uh, uh, Shepherd uh, University or whatever, and he was out there using it as a cold tub with his buddies. I mean, it's crazy, crazy stories of how he prepared for each football season by virtue of his dad's influence as well. Uh, and speaking of that, I don't know if you heard this or not, but somebody from West Virginia, a reporter, contacted Bajan last night, and he, in his research, he's the first West Virginia born and raised quarterback to start a National Football League game. It's, yeah, for me, it's wild to think about. Um, you just think about, you know, how long the NFL has been, you know, how long they've been playing in the NFL, how many people have gone through the NFL. Uh, so when they're still, when they're still, when you still be the first to do something in this league that's been around so long and had so many people uh, come through it, um, it's definitely an honor and something that's really crazy and wild to think about. You know, that it congratulate him even more. You know, yeah, this right? guy is, he, he's not a guy that grew up on Green Acres where he's climbing a telephone pole <laughs> to make a phone call. It's just the fact that he's from a small school and he's got a ton of belief in himself, ton of belief in his development, and that his experience, no matter how small the school it was, it's relatable to developing into an NFL quarterback. We'll see where it goes from here. Exactly. You know, we're not placing the crown on his head yet. However, the early indicators are that he is an asset to this football team. All right, now the other big question. I think people are thinking that he has not enough arm strength to push the ball down the field, and he pushed back on that today. Granted, the game plan was horizontal. It was a short passing game. It was the little toss to uh, Deontay Foreman. It was the fly sweeps. It was everything inside of 20 yards, nothing beyond 20 yards. That doesn't mean he he can't do it. He did take what the Raiders' defense allowed him to take. Now, we expect something different from a more pressure-oriented defense like the Chargers on Sunday. Uh, should these questions be asked of, of Bajan regarding his arm just because of that one performance? I, you know, I think it's kind of silly to base your um, e evaluation of Tyson Bajan on his first performance because you're talking about trying to protect against Max Crosby. You're trying to protect against multiple-level blitzers from the inside. So now you get an efficient 17-yard screen to Deontay Foreman. You get a, a nice screen over to uh, Mercedes Lewis. You get another touchdown pass to Deontay Foreman that he's able to score in the red zone. Listen, I'm not looking for 80-yard bombs. I'm looking for first downs. And we talk about this all the time, Jeff, whether it's the running game or the passing game, just 
have that nine extra minutes of time of possession that you did score when you get into the red zone, and it's all a part of a success story. To me, nothing can be more maddening for a defense than a 15-play drive uh, where they just slowly move the ball down the field, get in chunks, and eat up the time of possession, and they can't stop it. And that's what happened against the Raiders on three occasions. And as an offensive lineman, doesn't that give you more energy to, to have a drive? You would think it tires out an offense as well as a defense. And maybe it does. You tell me. I, these long drives, you know, more mistakes can happen, obviously, with more bites at the apple. But in the end, I, I seem to think an offensive line would get lathered up and feel good about it. Well, you're kind of answering your own question without asking a question. They have, 100, <laughs> they have 173 yards rushing. They have these exterior jet sweeps and passes to the outside. Now you can take these rotating defensive tackles and you make those guys run from hash mark to sideline or center field to sideline. And now all of a sudden by the third quarter, they're tired coming back onto the field. You have another one of those double-digit drives and they are standing with their hands on their hips in the huddle. And they are exhausted. So I, I listen, man, I was super impressed by the imaginativeness of Luke Getze and the game plan he put together for the Raiders. Which leads us to our conversation with Pro Football Hall of Famer Dan Fouts. Uh, Fouts joined us uh, from his home in Oregon for a good half hour talking about all things, including present and past offensive systems in the NFL and a bunch of other great stories. Hope you enjoy. All right, welcome in everybody to our Bears Etc. podcast. Our special guest this week, Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Fouts, a legendary figure for the San Diego, now L.A. Chargers with Tom Thayer. I'm Jeff Joniak. Good to have you alongside. And, Dan, we're coming up with ideas for this week's show. And first thing Tom said, gosh, is there any way to get a hold of Dan Fouts? Because he got a hold of Doug Williams, his old buddy from the USFL, and that was a wonderful conversation. And I know we're going to have a wonderful one with you. I, I looked to see if you guys ever, ever crossed paths in that 85 season, and you did not. I think we did play him in um, a couple years later because I uh, had uh, became friends with Ed White, uh, one of his offensive linemen, through uh, my friendship with Jim Lachey, who was one of their offensive tackles. I think I was on the field once saying hi to Dan Fouts and got yelled at by Coriel for coming over and saying hi. Uh, you know, it was like fraternizing with the enemy or something. Well, he, he hated every team and everybody associated with the team that we were playing. He would work himself up, up into a lather, and uh, we, we found it quite humorous at times. Um, but uh, he, was, he was just so focused, and his uh, hatred is what really drove him a lot. So when you look at the offenses of today and you look what you guys were doing back in the day, I mean, it was the most high-powered offense on the NFL market at that time. Is that offense transferable to the modern-day NFL, the RPOs and the that, that style of game? I think it has more of an influence on coaches and their willingness to throw the ball. Uh, the example that was set by the Air Coriel offense is where, uh, you know, it's easier to pick up eight yards throwing the ball than it is running the ball. Uh, unless you got Walter Payton. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing was is that I always like to uh, go back to Don Shula. And when they won uh, the Super Bowl with their tremendous season that they had when they went undefeated, in that Super Bowl, I think Greasy threw like 11 passes. Right. So you fast forward maybe 10 years from there to where now Shula drafts Dan Marino and Marino's throwing for 5,000 yards. So here you've got a coach who relied on Zonka and Kick and Mercury Morris uh, to run the ball, but he saw the effect that uh, our offense has had on the league uh, in a couple of great games against his defenses and his teams. And now he's got a great quarterback in Marino. He's willing to throw the ball, and now everybody's willing to throw the ball. Uh, Dan, uh, you touched on Walter Payton. You touched on Don Shula. Tom had the, the rare uh... – I guess you'd call it the rare hat trick. He, he played for uh, George Allen in the USFL, Don Shula in the NFL, and Mike Ditka in the NFL, uh, all Hall of Famers, uh, and just incredible coaching. And you had Don Coryell, but also go into the Hall of Fame with the following. Uh, your Hall of Fame class in 1993, uh, Walter Payton, it was Bill Walsh, who was also a coach of yours, the great Chuck Knoll, and one of the best uh, offensive linemen in NFL history, and Larry Little. What a Hall of Fame class. What do you remember about that day and the, the mingling with that class? Well, it's, it's the most humbling experience you can imagine uh, to be a member of the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, and to go in with that class, um, it, when they all turned 50 uh, back a couple of years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago or so, um, actually it was 10 years ago, they had a vote on uh, uh, what was the best Hall of Fame class of all time. Uh, excluding the very first class, which, you know, <laughs> Jim Thorpe and Red Grange and, and Bronco Nagurski and all those, uh, George Hallis and all those great people. Uh, but it, it was the other 49 uh, classes that they ranked. And surprisingly enough, they ranked uh, the class of 93, the fellows you just mentioned, as the number one class. So uh, Larry Little and I always, uh, when we see each other in Canton, which is every year we go back, we just raised one finger. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What 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 uh, impact did you about this year getting your coach in there, a guy just so synonymous with uh, great offense and um, his induction into the Hall of Fame? It all came full circle for you. Well, it really did. I mean, I owe Don Coriel everything. I mean, you guys wouldn't be talking to me now if he never was hired by the Chargers and gave us such great offense to work with and great players to play with. Um, I'm a selector on the Hall of Fame uh, committee. And so I've been beating that drum for as long as I've been on that uh, committee. And finally, I got smart and I I told the uh, other selectors, don't listen to my opinion about Don Coriel. Listen to the men you've already put in to the Hall of Fame. I, so I quoted, I had quotes from Don Shula, I had quotes from Tom Landry, and I had quotes from John Madden. But what I also did is I found a letter in my desk about six months before the, the meeting, and it was a letter that Bill Walsh had handwritten to Don Coriel. And it was uh, just sitting in my uh, desk, and Bill had sent me a copy because he wanted me to know what, how he felt about Coriel. And in the letter, I mean, it was just uh, remarkable that what he said, that he learned more just watching Coriel's offenses than he learned from all other coaches that he worked with combined. Well, that's a pretty big statement when you consider he worked for Paul Brown. So uh, that letter and those quotes from those other great coaches that are all in the Hall of Fame, I really, uh, I think, uh, helped uh, Coriel's cause because Prior to that, he'd been a finalist six times, six times. I had to go to the family and say, Jesus, I'm sorry he didn't make it this time. But this time, I got to say he did. I was reading a lot of articles about you overnight, and it seemed like every article started, Dan struggled the first couple years of his NFL career. Is that true? Did you struggle? And then number two, what was the turning point? And I almost looking for advice about what you would tell young quarterbacks of today. What was your turning point to a hall of fame career? Well, Tom, my first five years were, um, you know, I I was already fitting myself for a white belt and white shoes and a gold century 21 jacket because (laughs) I was going to be out of football in a big hurry. I had had four head coaches and five different offensive coordinators in those first five years. So, uh, that part of it was a little difficult. One of the coordinators, though, was Bill Walsh, and I only had him for one year, and then he went to Stanford and then the 49ers. But uh, once, once uh, you know, we played bad enough to uh, – and I played bad enough to get Tommy Prothrow fired that uh, uh, Don Coriel was just sitting at his home in San Diego having been fired by the St. Louis Cardinals the year before. And he wasn't doing anything except – you know, collecting his paycheck. But uh, the Chargers were smart enough to uh, pluck him and uh, put him as our head coach. And that is the turning point. Uh, Four games into my sixth year in the NFL, I had nine wonderful seasons with Coriel. And again, that's why, you know, I'm in the Hall of Fame and I'm talking to you guys this morning. When you look at the quarterbacks of today, because Jeff and I have been doing the Bears games now for 27 years, so we kind of pay attention to the draft, pay attention to the lineage. But guys like yourself, and then I came out in the 83 draft with Marino and that crew, and then you look at the Peyton Mannings and you look at the Tom Brady's. Do you think four years of college benefited you rather than if you were a modern-day quarterback, you might have been out of college after two or after three years? There's no question. And I think, you know, the college experience is so unique. It's where you really become 
uh, independent. You be, it's where you become a man, if you will. And at least I, that's the way I looked at it. I had a great time at the University of Oregon. Uh, I learned a lot, uh, both academically and athletically. But, but you're, you're absolutely right when you talk about the experience of uh, going into the NFL. And, and one of the problems with some of these young quarterbacks that are so good in college, they're so good in high school, but now they're being drafted by teams that aren't so good because they need a quarterback. But in my question for so many of them is how do you handle failure? Because you haven't failed. You've been a success. You're number one pick, blah, blah, blah. And here you now you're going to a team that won two games a year before uh, and is in disarray uh, because they need you. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's tough, but, you know, I think staying in school, experience that part of life, uh, and then experiencing some failures and not always being the best player, uh, learning how to be the best player, learning how to handle the wins and the losses. Dan Fouts, our guest here on Bears Etc., our weekly podcast. We get ready for the Bears and Chargers Sunday Night Football in L.A.'s SoFi Stadium. We're brought to you by Miller Lite, the official beer of the Chicago Bears. Tastes like Miller Time, Chicago. In that vein, you know, Tom and I, and I I'm totally agree uh, with Tom on this and, and yourself, Dan, uh, with the experience factor. So we only look at what our little uh, bubble here at Hallis Hall is right now. And uh, because of injury, Justin Fields uh, could not play last week. So Tyson Bajan, an undrafted rookie out of tiny Shepherd University in West Virginia, gets the call and leads the Bears to their most balanced game of the season. They checked every box in situational football that you can imagine, and all that without throwing a pass longer than 20, 20 yards in the game. Um, and so, but he had 53 games of experience in college. He is very poised. He comes out there and just does his thing by way of the short passing game. I don't know if you read about this game or saw him play at all, but um, this is quite a story brewing right now with an undrafted free agent in his first NFL start leading a game against the Raiders. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you want to build confidence, okay? And you want to build on, on that success of the short passing game. And it works. Uh, Bill Walsh made it very famous. Uh, the West Coast offense is basically a, a you know, a horizontal sideline to sideline uh, with an occasional uh, deep throw to Jerry Rice or John Taylor, <laughs> which worked out pretty good too. Uh, and having great quarterbacks like Montana and Young. So, you know, I think that what the Bears did against the Raiders was smart. Uh, obviously, the results were exactly what uh, you were hope, would hope for, uh, but surprisingly so, I'm sure, because nobody really knew uh, how the kid would perform. Well, you know, then I, I think about what Justin Herbert's going through. When you look at the – oh, they got a defensive-minded head coach, Dan, and you developed under an offensive-minded head coach. Do you think there's a better relationship if you have an offensive-minded head coach that is calling the plays or spearheads the direction of the offense, i.e. a Bill Walsh type of guy? Or can a quarterback succeed if there is that you know changeover? If an offensive coordinator is successful with the quarterback, he's going to get the next head coaching job. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the offensive coordinator is, is, uh, is, is more important than the head coach basically for a quarterback. Uh, because he's the guy he's talking to all the time and, and putting the game plan together and all those things. Uh, in in Herbert's case, if you look back at his career at Oregon, and he was there for five years, he had three different head coaches, and he had different offensive coordinators. And now with the Chargers, Kellen Moore is now their offensive coordinator. Well, that's like the fourth offensive coordinator and new offense that uh, – that Herbert's had to deal with. He's a brilliant kid. I mean, he's as smart as a whip um, and, you know, he can handle it, but the problems aren't on the offense with the Chargers right now. They're on the defense and their ability to stop people and be, put people away. And, and, uh, uh, but it is a team game. And I think that last week against Kansas city, the uh, defense was horrible in the first half, but great in the second half. And uh, the offense was great in the first half and horrible in the second half. They couldn't put it together, or they might have upset the Chiefs. In the Miami game backed up by the Cincinnati game, there's a 
a degree difference of 147 degrees from the Miami game at 88 degrees to the minus 59 game in Cincinnati. Have you ever been as cold as you were in Cincinnati or have you ever been as exhausted as you were in Miami? I get this question a lot. Uh, there was a major shrinkage in Cincinnati and uh, a lot of exhaustion and cramps in Miami. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the game though, right? You got to play with the elements, whatever they are. And, uh, you know, I, I tip my hat to Kenny Anderson and the Bengals on that cold day in Cincinnati because he played great, and uh, I did not. But you did play very well when you met the Bears uh, on December 4th, and it was a Monday night matchup, 40-7 to win over Neil Armstrong's Bears. Uh, Virgil Livers did have a 60-yard interception return for a touchdown, but uh, you hit John Jefferson 42 yards. Do you remember anything about that game that, that time ago back in 1978? Yeah, th- th- I remember that game very well because that's – right where we felt that Eric Coriel was taking off. Uh, we had played the Seahawks the week before and put 37 on them. Now we come and we beat the Bears. We put 40 points there. Then we end the season in Houston, and I think we put 45 on the Oilers at the time. So hmm. that was the last three games of the year, and they were all uh, tremendous scoring games for us, and we knew that we really had something going into uh, the following seasons. So, yeah, I uh, thanks for bringing that memory up for me. That's a good one. Than, uh, yeah, yeah, better than Tom, you know, that, that freezer game. <laughs> hey, you know, Tom and I talk about this all the time, too, because Tom's had two careers. He played for uh, 10, 11 years in the National Football League, and he's uh, uh, three decades deep here into a, a broadcasting career. You did the same, the son of a famous broadcaster in the Bay Area. And, uh, and was your father the voice of the 49ers for a time as well? I know he was a legendary figure in that area. And how did you feel about having two careers associated with this great game? Uh, yeah, my dad was the play-by-play announcer of the 49ers back in the uh, 50s and 60s. And so that gave me uh, an opportunity at times to be in the press box, sitting next to him, uh, keeping scores for him. Uh, then I kind of grew out of that, and I was a ball boy on the sidelines for the 49ers. You know, look at Johnny Unitas or C. Gale Sayers and Butkus. And I remember George Hallis, at, towards the end of his career, he had a chair at the 50-yard line, and that's where he sat, at least when they played the 49ers in Kizar. He sat there. And we were, as ball boys, told never, ever run in front of Coach Alice. He always had to run behind him. That's an awesome story. SoFi Stadium, Chargers being in L.A., what do they have to do to get a home field advantage? Because even when the Bears played there against the Rams a couple of years ago, it was probably 65% Ram or Bears fans. Is it going to be something that they're going to have to get into a, a playoff type of push where, you know, they're de- they're going to go deep into the playoffs? Well, that's a really a good question, Tom, because it's the Rams, the Chargers, and the Raiders that all have this problem now right. uh, because people want to go to Vegas to watch uh, the Raiders play uh, and their home team, and they also want to go to shows. And, and people from uh, back east in the Midwest towards December, November – they want to go to L.A. because the weather's great. There's a lot of good things to do in L.A., and they you know, want to watch their team because a lot of uh, teams back where you are are sold out. Nick, fans can't go to those games, but uh, they can afford a plane ticket, maybe get to L.A., get to Vegas, and and, uh, and go crazy. Uh, but you're right. It is a major problem. Uh, the Chargers and the Rams, uh, you watch them on offense, they're using a silent count because their quarterback at home can't be heard over the crowd noise made by the opposing fans. So, uh, you know, if it takes a playoff push, maybe. But it, remember, it is Los Angeles and it is Las Vegas. There's a lot of distractions in both those places. Dan, did you run a lot of shotgun offense back then, or were you directly behind center? Because, you know, there's so many differences in the count nowadays because of the RPO, because of the motion, because of where they line up in the different offensive formations. No, we never used a shotgun. Um, Our offense was based on timing routes uh, that were tied to my drop, to the receiver's depth on his routes. You know, three-step drop was a quick pass. Five-step was a medium. Seven-step was a little bit deeper. And the other thing was is that uh, although I did fumble once in a while from under center, uh, I could keep my eyes downfield. Uh, I could keep my eyes 
and, and look around and read defenses as I'm under center. Uh, in the shotgun, a quarterback, he better be looking at that ball uh, because you never know when that center is going to snap it. And you see, you know, at times uh, a bad snap or a bad catch, and it's a seven, eight-yard loss all of a sudden. Right. But uh, I always liked being under center because, you know, I could tell when those linebackers were coming, Tom, their eyes are bugging out of their <laughs> helmets and they're foaming at the mouth and everything. All right, our remaining moments with Dan Fouts, the Pro Football Hall of Famer and a member of the 1980s All-Decade team in the National Football League, uh, led the league uh, four consecutive years in passing, two-time first-team All-Pro, six-time Pro Bowler, Offensive Player of the Year in 1982, all this by a third-round pick out of Oregon in 1973, the 64th pick of the NFL Draft. You mentioned how uh, detailed and, I don't know, maybe I'm assuming complicated uh, the Coriel, Air Coriel offense was. And I don't know, today we often hear the playbooks, you know, two years in they haven't even touched the surface of getting to know the details and the concepts in the passing game of the offenses of today. And we often think maybe it's too complicated uh, to usher in these inexperienced quarterbacks that come in with so much success as we alluded to earlier. And then, you know, the expectation is year two, you got to be greater. You know, we're moving on to the next guy. It's almost like the head coaches in this league. W- was it super complicated? And do you think it should be less complicated today? Well, I, it was not super complicated uh, because there was a basis of the offense when Coriel first got there. But each game and each season, we would add to it but we always had that foundation to go back to if we were struggling. So, you know, we'd come out, run the same play four different ways, four different formations, but it was the same play. We would just ask a guy, you know, like a Winslow, uh, Hey, go out wide and let's see who covers you. Okay. Uh, that was the beauty of Coriel is he could see and he would study a guy's past uh, a guy like Little Train James, Lionel James, uh, was a quarterback in high school, and he could throw the ball. And so we would put in halfback passes for Little Train. Hmm. Kellen Winslow, he can throw a ball 100 yards. Uh, so we throw, you know, have a double pass for him to throw the ball. Pete Holohan was a quarterback at Notre Dame uh, oh. bef- with Joe Montana. Uh, Montana, of course, beat him out. And Holohan went to tight end or a wide receiver, but he could still throw. So th- these things you would research as Coriel did find out, you know, this guy was an option quarterback. So let's run an option with him, not with Fouts. Fouts can't do that. So anyway, <laughs> that, that was the beauty of, uh, of Don Coriel. So you're on the Hall of Fame selection committee. Devin Hester is, is semifinalist range again. Uh, how do you feel about Devin Hester? and the Hall of Fame, given it the uniqueness of being a return man, first and foremost? I think it's about time uh, because he was the best. And, uh, you know, one of those guys that you hold your breath, and I'm sure you guys did every time he uh, was back deep to return something uh, because you were about to see something special. Uh, and so, you know, the word special teams is is starting to get a little bit more um, more weight to it when it comes to voting. And as I said, uh, Hester was the best. I think it's about time. You know, Dan, uh, my last question kind of goes to college. You got USC, you have Oregon, you have Washington with three dynamic quarterbacks. I know you're an Oregon alum, but do you see any one of those three guys that you like and that you think could maybe be at the top of the draft next year? Yeah, I think think they'll all be number one picks. Uh, Williams, obviously – uh, won the Heisman last year, and, and uh, uh, they've been struggling a little bit this year, but he's a very talented guy. Uh, Pinnix from Washington is very accurate. Uh, you know, he's left-handed, so it looks a little bit different, but not when the receiver catches the ball. And, and with Bo Nix, you've got uh, kind of a mixture of those two. He's extremely accurate. As you can see, he's completing almost 80% of his passes. He's a smart kid. He's played more games than any other player in college football. Uh, I think, I mean, I know as a quarterback, he may have, he's played like 54 games started at, at, uh, at Auburn and then transferred to Oregon. And so he's got that experience that we were talking about, uh, at, you know, a couple of minutes ago where you stay in college and you learn, you know, the ups and downs of college as Bo Nix has done that. And, uh, but I like all three of those quarterbacks. I think they're all outstanding. 
What do you think of Justin? We haven't talked about him. Well, you know, I think that, again, I think he's a, a guy that's got a lot of talent, um, but it's going to take some time. Uh, you know, running quarterbacks, uh, guys that expose themselves, uh, you know, you're going to – I always look at it like a, a quarterback's kind of a gunfighter. Uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to win some. Uh, you're going to lose some. You're going to get, uh, you know, nicked every now and then. A bullet's going to catch you. But if, if you look at who wins Super Bowls, uh, aside from Patrick Mahomes, uh, they're basically drop-back pocket type of passers. I'm thinking of Tom Brady and a Peyton Manning and, and guys like that. Uh, so I would, you know, it worries me uh, when a quarterback runs too much because you're exposed to professional tacklers and guys that are coming with bad intentions. All right. Well, this was wonderful. We could literally talk for hours with you because you got a great depth of knowledge and uh, wonderful. Loved watching you play in those exciting Chargers teams. Somebody who grew up uh, admiring John Brody. I liked him from afar as well. And then you, you get drafted and you're with Johnny Unitas. That's nuts. <laughs> What a career you've had, Dan. Thank you so much. Well, let me just tell you one Unitas and one Brody story. I, Bring it know, on. I was a ball boy, ball boy for the 49ers, but I was always on that uh, opponent's sideline. And Unitas, at the end of the game, he goes out to shake Brody's hands, and uh, John Brody has his helmet on, and John Unitas does not. And they're walking off the field, and Brody tells Unitas, hey, John, if you're walking off the field with me, you better put your helmet on. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and did you ever introduce yourself to Mr. Hallis? No, I never did. I, I regret that I never uh, got to say hello to him and, and really tell him thank you uh, because it's men like George Hallis that built, built the game. Surely that is the case. Wonderful to talk to you. Uh, congratulations on all your success, and uh, we love that you're still heavily involved with Pro Football, uh, with the Hall of Fame Committee, and uh, enjoyed talking to you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on, guys. Talk, Appreciate talk it. to you later. Good luck. All right, See good you, luck. Buddy. Thanks. You, you talk about a Hall of Fame quarterback. He had 254 touchdown passes, and now today, you know, you, you really are concerned about interceptions, and you want compete, completion percentages, hopefully in the upper 60s. His career percentage in that was 59%. He threw for 242 interceptions. So, right. you know – Things were different then, obviously. Uh, no one wants to make mistakes or give the ball back to the opposition, but he won games, and he was an outstanding leader, and he made it to the Hall of Fame as a third-round pick. It's pretty cool. Right, third-round pick is amazing. And, you know, Ed White, one of his offensive linemen, he's a sculptor, and I have a series of his sculpts, uh, sculptors that he gave me that are – um, uh, hippos that are doing different things, lifting weights and stuff. And he also used to make the uh, John Madden trophies. Wow. So, yeah, this guy is an incredible guy. And um, I got to meet him through mutual friends, and we went on a sailboat a couple times. And so it would have been fun to even pick his brain about Donnie Masick, his center, Ed White, and just some of the other guys he played with. For all your journeys ahead, go with a partner who's been on your team from the beginning, the one members and communities have trusted for over 85 years, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, always standing by you, with you, for you, through it all. All right, let's dig into the Chargers matchup. Uh, they're coming off back-to-back -back losses. You know what that means, a third straight loss, and everybody goes into panic. This is considered to be a, a really good playoff caliber football team in terms of some of the stars they have on both sides of the ball, not the least of which is their quarterback, Justin Herbert. Let's start there. What do you think of what you've seen on tape for this uh, just 25-year-old quarterback who's got a $262 million contract? You know, super competitive. He's a great athlete. He's a big guy. He can take punishment. He can deliver it. He's got a Josh Allen-type physique. He can or incorporate receivers from 50 yards downfield to at the line of scrimmage. He's got an offense that's got a lot of versatility built in it. The only thing is about the Chargers is sometimes everybody sits there and waits for Justin Herbert to make the big play. And when he tries too hard to make the big play, sometimes that's when he presents an opportunity for the opponent's offense so, or so, the opponent's defense. There's also a tie-in, I think, probably, too, losing Mike Williams. He suffered a season-ending knee injury in week three, and so they have had – less success since that point, even though they have one of 
and now he's a, he's a veteran, of course. He's been around a while now, but Keenan Allen is still a very dangerous player at the receiver position. And, of course, Austin Eckler, he missed uh, a handful of games due to injury, so he's back but has not been as effective as he was in the opener. He had 117 on 16 carries against Miami, and since then just 28 carries for 72 yards. But uh, are you more worried about Eckler the back or Eckler the receiver? That, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because, to me, He's a different version of McCaffrey from San Francisco. When you look at Austin Eckler, Jay, Jeff, he rarely takes a step backward. He rarely takes a lateral step. His vision is going forward, and he's going at a, such a quick rate that he makes it real challenging for tacklers because he's not a big guy, but he's willing to deliver and take punishment. When I look at Austin Eckler, Edge passes are my main fear of him because I think if you can get multiple bodies in his interior path in running the ball, you can limit his success. But, man, if he gets in space on the outside edge, he, he can be gone. And another undrafted player. <laughs> I mean, Western State in Colorado, Austin Eckler. Right. Great story. So two undrafted free agents will be grabbing some of the headlines one way or another on Sunday night. Take a chance. Download the Bet Rivers app today. All right, let's uh, flip it over to the uh, defensive side of the ball. And Khalil Mack had six of his seven sacks in one game against a rookie, Aiden O'Connell, of the Raiders in week four. Uh, still highly regarded. They're not playing him on just one side. Uh, I always felt that Khalil was a very good run-stopping edge player, and I still I still maintain that. You may agree or disagree with that, and Joey Bosa. So you have two instead of one big-time edge rusher like Mass Crosby last week. Where does the burden lie here, uh, and do you just have to find out where Mac is every time? Are you more concerned about him or Bosa or both? You know, I'm, I'm not going to let either of those guys go unblocked or have a free rush. But to me, I can never get that Raiders game in London out of yeah. my head and how they attack Khalil Mack. So, you know, I think one thing that was a little bit of concern was that Cole Komet wasn't targeted, but he did a great job on the offensive line be, being more than a chipper with the tackle. So if you have a guy like Kari Blassingame, a Cole Komet, um, the offensive tackle position, that they can get physical with Khalil Mack, I think you can take a toll on him um, of, and then having productive run yards at him. The thing about it, though, is, you, uh, is that you can't let just Bosa run up field and chase from behind because he's got recognition athleticism and he can close the distance quickly. So I need to win the point of attack battle at Khalil Mack and then get up field before Bosa can come in and interfere. And he's still one of the best guys at force and fumbles. Those strip sacks for Khalil Mack add up. Uh, interesting. Why not use a jumbo offensive line? Add another uh, offensive lineman attacker if you're going to go big and use uh, that to, to try and slow down Mack and Bosa and get Cole more involved in patterns, not just blocking. Well, they just haven't yet. So okay. I don't think unless they insert it this week and they try to get it in a couple times per game, then they can use it. But if you look at the tight end position, you look at Mercedes um, Lewis and you look at Cole Komet and you look at Robert Tanya and all these guys can block. But if they're just a chipper and go, then all of a sudden if the linebacker or the safety starts losing sight of these guys and then you get a couple of eight, nine, seven-yard passes for Cole and the crew, then you're talking about productive yards and hopefully that convert to first downs. Hey, Bears fans, want to meet a Bears legend? Uh, then head to the Verizon store at 375 East Palatine Road in Arlington Heights this Saturday, October 28th, between 12 and 4 for a meet and greet, food, fun games, and more. Get ready for an unforgettable day with a favorite Bears player. I know who it is now. Who? Matt Forte. Oh, <laughs> one of the all-time legends and the greats and one of the nicest guys we've ever come across in our time uh, with the Bears. And, uh, you know, you, you go get inspired by how uh, good in shape that that guy still is in, at this stage of his afterlife. He, he sure is the afterlife of football. Uh, yes, uh, one of the more, uh, by definition, professional player, professional NFL players I've ever come across, uh, that is for sure. So you'll get to meet uh, – that one right Matt there. Forte. Matt Forte. Bring your uh, 22 jersey, get him to sign it, take exactly. a picture with him, and you have it for perpetuity. Tom, you know who took the podium Wednesday, don't you? It's an annual. It's just an annual. It's no more than that. Tony uh, Medlin. I was gonna, uh, yes, I was going to make sure you brought it up. 
Uh, had equipment manager, I think, what do you say, 32 years 35. now? 35 years of, of yep. the coat drive. This one extends into February, so Jewel Osco and uh, Salvation Army uh, partnering on this with the Bears, and it's always uh, a major important thing. Tony, it's a, it's a labor of love uh, to be fronting this. DJ Moore was the player helping out this year and talking about awesome. it. Uh, so get those coats, uh, light, gently used, new, whatever, whatever you could spare, and help out uh, shivering Chicagoans uh, this winter. It's always something that uh, it's it's consistent. You know it's the changing of the seasons when Team Med gets to the podium. Listen, I, I bring coats every year up to Hallis Hall, and I put it in the contribution box up there because there's nothing that kills me more on a winter day driving downtown and see anybody shivering to death without the proper coat to get through the Chicago winter. So if you can fill these boxes with the lightly coats that you have sitting in your closet that you haven't put on in 10 years, bring them to Jewel Osco, bring them to wherever you can, Salvation Army, and feel good about the contributions that you're making to warm up somebody else's life. All right, so you got Bosa, you got Mac, and we haven't talked about Derwin James as we wrap up our uh, preview of the L.A. Chargers and the Bears on Sunday Night Football. We'll have it for you uh, starting with a 5 o'clock pregame, the kickoff uh, coming up at 7.15 on Sunday night. Uh, Derwin James, he is the prototypical new-age safety who basically can be deployed as a big nickel dime linebacker uh he's a very very impactful player what is going on though with their defense they're they're ranked poorly in almost every major area well you know the thing about it with other than Khalil Mack having that big game of sacks you know Bosa was injured for a little while Khalil Mack only was credited with one tackle last week they just don't have the consistency of fast pressure against the quarterbacks they're playing against. So mm-hmm. these defensive backs, including Derwin James, can jump routes quicker. And Derwin James is only one man, so he can only do so much. So if uh, you get the creativity by Luke Getze again and you put these guys on the defensive where they're either backpedaling in the defensive defensive backfield or the ball is out of the hands of Tyson Bajan quickly to the exterior. Um, you know, I, I think def- all defenses would have trouble being successful against it, but you know, they put a lot of uh, emphasis on their pass rush game in uh, uh, LA chargers. And it just hasn't come through like they had hoped. Bears, etc., is brought to you in part by PNC bank official bank of the bears. Let's talk bears defense to wrap us up here. Uh, because it's been really good here in the last three, four weeks. Certainly stopping the run, starting to take the ball away. Sacks are increasing. They're making things difficult on opposing offenses. And to maintain that, do you think they've got the momentum to do so? And I'm also seeing Jervon Dexter and Zach Pickens picking up their play and becoming more impactful in that regard. Tremaine Edmonds is making big plays. T.J. Edwards, still one of the top tacklers in the NFL. Hoping Jaquan Brisker is going to be okay with whatever illness he has that missing practice today because I, I don't say, now I'm not saying he is Derwin James, but he can play like that type of player, line him up as a linebacker, blitz him, do what he did last week and be very disruptive. I, I see a lot of great things happening as the secondary continues to get healthy. It's still not 100. Eddie Jackson's still not ready and Kyler Gordon just working his way back. But are you enthusiastic and excited about what is going on now that Matt Eberflus has taken control of that defense and is making all those calls? You know, I think Yannick Ngakwe, Demarcus Walker, Justin Jones, uh, Rasheen Green are really good positive influences on the young guys. So when you talk about Javon Dexter and you talk about Zach Pickens, these guys are playing at a higher level as the season winds on because I think there are some motivating, some leaders on the defensive line. And then I think the linebackers are getting to understand the defensive line better. You see a lot more plays made out of the linebacker positions, either tackles for loss by Jack Sanborn, Johnny on the spot tackles by TJ Edwards, a couple of interceptions or fumbled interception by Tremaine Edmonds. I just think that the front You know, I'm going to call it the front 11 because they have a rotating defensive line that there's multiple bodies up there. Now, if you can keep fresh bodies on the defensive line late into the game, that's super challenging to the offenses you're playing against in the fatigue that sets in on the offensive linemen. But I think, um, you know, it's about the defensive backs. Kyler Gordon still in there is playing an important role. Like you mentioned, Brisker playing all over the field last week. Uh, Tariq Stevenson. 
Yeah. I think he gets better with each rep that he gets a chance to play. And Jalen Johnson has to come up, be coming off an all time high. Um, and you know, when he got the game ball in the locker room from Eberflus, I like his humble approach. It wasn't, uh, you know, look at me type of speech. It was, Hey, you know, thank everybody that in this room that's been working hard. Let's keep going in that direction. And I, and I think that's important just like Deontay Foreman's was as well. Tom, this is a dynamic offense. This defense is going to face though, because you got the dynamic quarterback, one of the best in the league, Justin Herbert. You got the outstanding running back, Austin Eckler, which we touched on. And then you got Keenan Allen. So, is this the biggest test they'll be faced here in recent weeks then with all that? Because Justin Jefferson wasn't playing for the Vikings either. It is, but here, here's my, um, my dark horse contributor, the bears crowd, the bears crowd. When the bears are, when San Diego or the LA's on offense, the bears crowd has to be loud. If they can make, the offense one half a second behind time, that is going to be an incredible advantage for the Bears defense. So I expect it to be a heavy Bears crowd in SoFi Stadium, and they can be a major contributor to slowing down you know, a functionable offense if you can take the verbal count out of Justin Herbert's mouth. All right, last thing, we always wrap things up with something kind of funny. So I was looking on YouTube, couldn't sleep the other night. I saw a preseason Bears-Packers game at Milwaukee County Stadium with everybody on the same sideline. It was 1969, though. Uh, so you were just, you know, over there in Joliet working. Eight years old. Yeah, eight years old, already starting to do push-ups and curls. So uh, when the guys warmed up on the sideline, today they do it a little differently. But back then, two players basically grabbed each other and bumped themselves into each other, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the shoulder pads a few times. Right. That doesn't happen anymore. How come? And why did uh, why know, did they feel they needed to do it? Do you have any uh, knowledge because, of this? Yeah, because we <clears throat> we did it as well, but it's just about getting some contact before the first contact against your opponent. Get a little bit of you know shake inside you. Get on the understanding <laughs> what it's what you're feel what it's going to feel like, whether it's super hot weather or cold weather. So. You know, there's always a couple slides. But, you know, when we warm up against offense and defensive linemen in the end zone before the game, we went at a pretty good clip. We went almost live. Mm. And so it was, you know, you got uh, you got your four or five reps in the end zone, and then we ran a couple plays as an offense and defensive unit. You should get a lot of work in, in that part of the warm-ups. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of funny because I, I, I remember, you know, it happening, obviously, growing up watching football, but I haven't seen that in a long time. But these guys were right. thudding up each other on the sideline. They were paired right. off. It was very funny. Anyway, it's always – that YouTube is dangerous, man. You can go down very uh, – deep rabbit holes in finding all these old videos of football, but I can't get enough of it. What can I tell you? All right. Well, that's, why you, that's why you can't go back to sleep because you're watching football at 3 in the morning. Exactly, exactly. I got a problem. All right, that's going to wrap up our podcast, Big Tom. You nailed it again. Thanks to our special guest, Dan Fouts, the Hall of Fame quarterback with the Chargers. And uh, coming up, our next Bears Etc. podcast will drop on Tuesday morning after we get in late from L.A. We will knock out that podcast and the review of the Bears-Chargers game. Stay awake, Tom. Stay awake. No sleeping on the plane. Never. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe now to the Chicago Bears official app, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bear down, everybody.